Welcome to today's episode of Ownership Matters, a podcast for homeowners in resident-owned communities, brought to you by Rock USA. I'm Paul Bradley. And I'm Mike Bullard. <laughs> Mike, we have a great guest today. I'm very excited that Michael Swack will be joining us. His name might be familiar to some of our listeners out there. Michael serves on the Rock USA Board of Directors. In fact, I think he's the first board member that we've had join us here on Ownership Matters. I think that's correct, Paul. After listening to you and Michael talk back and forth, in fact, I think we recorded for more than 20 minutes before you actually let me speak. I think that's true. (laughs) It was super interesting to learn about the early days of community loan funds and ultimately to how the industry went from literally the beginning to what it is today. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about Michael Swack, Mike? Happy to, Paul. Michael Swack is a professor at the University of New Hampshire, where he has appointments at the Carsey School of Public Policy and the Peter T. Paul College of Business and Economics. My alma mater. Go Wildcats. He directs the Center for Impact Finance and the Master's Program in Community Development, a program he designed for adult practitioners. At Carsey, he's working on building scale in the community development finance sector, innovations in community development finance, microfinance, and sustainable energy financing. Michael was the founder and former dean of the School of Community Economic Development at Southern New Hampshire University. He has been involved in the design, implementation, and management of a number of community development lending investment institutions, both inside and outside the United States. Michael has published in the areas of economic development and development finance. He received his doctorate degree from Columbia University, his master's from Harvard, and his bachelor's degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Well, welcome to Ownership Matters, Michael. It is a real pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks. It's great to be here. Great, great. Well, we've been excited about this interview for quite a while because there's no one that has more to do with the history of community development finance and community loan funds and really resident-owned communities than Michael Swack. And so, Michael, it's just really great to have you with us. And we're looking forward to having you take us a long way back, close to 45 years, I think, if my math's correct this morning, to the early days of community development finance in the U.S. And could you describe for us some of the ideas that were circulating around the startup of a nonprofit community loan fund at the time, the Institute for Community Economics in Massachusetts. Uh, you were very intimately involved and familiar with that work. Just take us back to the mid, mid to late 70s. What, what were you all trying to accomplish? Well, it was just an interesting story about how I, I met Chuck Mathai, who was the director of Institute for Community Economics at the time. This was a, a small nonprofit organization based in, in Boston when, when uh, I first met Chuck. ICE was an organization that was primarily concerned with the idea of community land trusts. That is how a community could control land and, and prevent speculation and, and gentrification. And, and the idea, not too dissimilar from the way rocks are structured, what was to essentially take land off the speculative market. The idea is you shouldn't profit from the, the sale of land. And in fact, that's what was causing gentrification, people being forced out. This is back in, in the late 70s of their homes because certain urban areas were becoming more desirable now and the land prices were going up and people could no longer afford the housing there. I was Interestingly, I was introduced to Chuck 
by someone from outside the state. I, I was had finished graduate school and, and was working for a sort of boutique consulting firm that consulted to state agencies and sovereign wealth funds. I mean, it was a pretty, pretty fancy sort of entity. And I was traveling back from uh, Alaska where I was working on a, a project to, to help create an investment strategy for what was the Alaska Permanent Fund. I was interested in, in stopping in Montana because I had been introduced by a friend to someone in a group called the Montana Land Reliance. And the Montana Land Reliance was in some ways your typical conservancy trust, that is they were conserving for, for nature purposes, but were also interested in housing. And the guy in Montana said to me, oh, well, you must know Chuck Mathai. And I said, who? He said, well, Chuck Mathai. I mean, he's done all this great work on land. And I said, no. And so he um, you know, gave me his number and all, and I called Chuck and, and, and met with Chuck. He told me about what they were doing. And I said, I was interested. We had a few more discussions. About six months after that, maybe in, in this was in late 1979, early 1980, Chuck said, well, you worked in finance. You know, one of the biggest problems that we've had is, is that we have these organizations that we're helping that are land trusts trying to buy land and create affordable housing, but you know, nobody will finance it. So I want to start our own loan fund. And I said, oh, okay, great. And he said, actually, I want you to start our, our, our loan fund since you know something about finance and I don't. And so as a starting point, we just looked at, well, who would the investors be and what would the structure look like and what legal avenues did we have to go down to make sure that we weren't violating any securities laws or anything like that when we, when we raised money. So that's essentially how we got started. Chuck knew a couple people who were private individual investors who were really interested in the concept and they were the first investors. And Chuck and ICE were working with groups already in, in Boston and in Maine and in Cincinnati. And, and so some of the first loans went to finance purchases of community land trusts. So I worked on that for a couple of years. At that point, I had switched jobs and was then working in New Hampshire, you know, started a job at then New Hampshire College, now Southern New Hampshire University. You know, I talked to Chuck, he said, you know, we should really help start other loan funds. And since I was in New Hampshire, I said, well, let's get a group of people together and let's think about starting one there. So we did. And, and concurrently, actually, in Boston and Philadelphia as well. The idea was taking what we had developed, the concept at ICE, and implementing that on a, on a regional basis with people that we knew. Great. So interesting. Right. So that's the genesis of the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund and, and at the time, Boston Community Loan Fund. And then what became the Reinvestment Fund, TRF. Right. Well, because then the, the Delaware Valley Community Reinvestment Fund was its original name. Yeah. Very good. Well, we're going to go back to just sort of the trajectory of community loan funds in a moment. But from the earliest days, I think the the religious communities, organized religion had a role in capitalizing a lot of these loan funds. What was what was happening uh, in the religious community that saw this as a uh, as a vehicle, as an opportunity, as a part of their missions? Well, again, th these were connections of Chuck. So Chuck had friendships with sisters, for example, the Sisters of Mercy, and 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 in fact. The sisters were involved in, in one of the early land trusts in Maine, which is how Chuck met 
some of the sisters. So they were involved because of the, the social justice angle and also wanted a place where they could invest some of their own money. So actually the Sisters of Mercy were one of the early investors in the ICE loan fund. And as you know, Paul, also one of the early investors in the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But these were friends of Chuck, who, who also was uh, very interested in the Catholic worker movement and actually lived for a time in a Catholic worker house back in the 1970s. Okay, great. And so this community loan fund model, this nonprofit borrower from a variety of, of people, religious institutions, I assume banks began at some point coming into the community loan funds as lenders. Yeah, not not for a while, though. I mean, initially, with uh, because it was so uh, unknown and there was no track record and, and, you know, we looked like a scruffy group of people who didn't really know what we were talking about. So the, it, it was a while before the banks really came in. Initially, it was... Uh, individual investors and religious investors and and initially a small amounts of public money. Okay. Interesting. And on the borrower side of these community loan funds, you talked about community land trusts. Were there other things that these early loan funds were making loans to that you know made this connection between a community investor and community borrower? Right. Well, the really the big issue at the time was was and still is unfortunately affordable housing, uh, and, and particularly the importance of the community loan fund is is the same thing you see now, which is how difficult it is to underwrite individual borrowers who don't meet the credit standards of, of a standard mortgage underwriting, and so you know either they didn't have the down payment or they were paying too much of their monthly income towards housing, which of course is routine now. They're the standards that mortgage underwriters like, but the the reality is many people pay 50% plus of their income for housing. So that was an issue then. Although we began also to look at small community businesses, ones that came out of nonprofits, uh, you may know that ICE was the first investor in what became Stonyfield Farm Yogurt. And in fact, I wrote their first business plan because Chuck had talked to Samuel Kamen, one of the, the co-founders, who said, I, I want to start a yogurt business. And Chuck said to me, well, I, I don't know anything about business lending or yogurt business. And I said, "They, well, you know, we want to see a business plan. And he said, well, go meet with them and, you know, help them write a business plan. At the time, they were running a, a nonprofit called the Rural Education Center in Wilton, New Hampshire. And the idea for a yogurt business initially was to support the work of the, of the nonprofit. So ICE was the first lender to what is now Stonyfield Yogurt. Well, and play that out over 40 years and think about the impact on dairy farming and uh, agriculture in the, in the Northeast and, and I don't know, beyond probably. Really spectacular. Right. So the idea, again, it was local economic development and, and small business was pretty early on a part of what uh, community loan funds also financed. Great, great. And I know Mike. Mike's itching to get in to talk about the New Hampshire work. I'm going to hold you off just one more minute, Mike, to, to ask Michael, since we're talking about community loan funds in the earliest stages, it's tough for Mike to bite his lip, but there you go. You know, Starts off with one, the Institute for Community Economics grows to now four with Boston, New Hampshire, and Philadelphia. 
so take our listeners, Michael, from uh, the early 80s to 2022. What's been the growth of community loan funds over that 40-year period? Right. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, there are hundreds of community loan funds now. And there were others. I mean, there were people doing this sort of work. So Dan Liebson, for example, in San Francisco ran an organization called the Low Income Housing Fund, which in its current iteration is the Low Income Investment Fund, which is one of the largest CDFIs. But Dan was one of the initial founders of what we called the National Association of Community Loan Funds. That is, we got together about seven or eight like-minded organizations to say, well, we should form an an organization of of people who share the mission of what we're doing, of, of providing financing to projects and communities that that don't meet the requirements of the mainstream financial markets, but are building opportunities for local ownership and control of of economic resources. And so we founded this group called the National Association of Community Loan Funds, a, a very small organization initially that had maybe seven or eight members. I remember the the thing we talked about the most is what to call ourselves, right? As opposed to but you know, talked about a governance structure and 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 a, a real emphasis on uh, mission. The idea was we were organized around mission, not around the issue that we were loan funds. There were lots of economic development loan funds, typically run by government at the time. What there weren't were a lot of nonprofit mission-oriented loan funds that focused on economic justice issues as opposed to purely economic development issues. So that's what differentiated the members of this National Association of Community Loan Funds. I'd say one of the really important elements too was, you know, when Bill Clinton was running for president in in 1991 and 1992, he he was really enamored of of two basic models that that he talked about. One was the South Shore Bank, which was a a, a commercial bank, but a mission-oriented bank that was based in Chicago, which had uh, started in in the 1970s and, and you know, attracted a lot of depositors who had social goals because their commitment was to providing financing to uh, build and invest in the South Shore community of, of the city of Chicago, which had been disinvested. And they were doing a good job of, of making loans where other banks weren't and, and, and demonstrating the viability of that. And the other is that he loved the Grameen Bank, the concept of microfinance and very small loans, particularly to women. And, and as part of his campaign, came up with the idea that, that one of his goals was to create 100 development banks like Grameen and like South Shore Bank. Well, South Shore Bank didn't have many others like it. And, and one of the things as we listened to him, we said, uh, well, you know, we should uh, talk to his campaign because what about us? You know, we already exist. He doesn't know about us, but we're doing what he wants from a mission basis. And so we did and and really influenced the outcome of the CDFI legislation. As you may know, I was one of the people who testified in front of the Senate Banking Committee on the legislation. But what we really pushed the early uh, National Association of Community Loan Funds is, is they shouldn't be 100 development banks. And this is where the term community development financial institution emerged from, is that you want to look at different models that meet the mission test and aren't necessarily banks. It's really hard to start a new bank. I mean, you need all sorts of investors and the regulatory environment is very tough. So we had a major role in in shaping 
the legislation that created the CDFI fund, which is today, as you know, the, the biggest supporter of community development financial institutions or CDFIs. CDFIs and vitally important. You know, on the one hand, lower barrier to entry for community loan funds or community development financial institutions today through this legislation, but as nonprofits, a significant challenge raising capital. When I say capital, I mean both equity and net assets as well as debt in order to support community lending. And obviously, Michael is one of the leaders in capitalization of CDFIs and has been a huge help to Rock USA Capital in raising capital to finance co-ops. So I got a smile on my face, Michael, when you mentioned the Grameen Bank, which for our listeners is G-R-A-M-E-E-N. The founder of that is Muhammad Yunus. And Michael and I had the pleasure of meeting Muhammad Yunus. At least you maybe have met him more than once, but uh, you and I were together with him once at the university and uh, really a highlight and one of, one of many highlights in my career, personally, a chance to meet him. Mike, I know this is the longest you've ever gone without jumping right in, and I apologize, but my enthusiasm for our guest today has me on the edge of my seat. So I tip my hat to my colleague and partner here. Mike, why don't you jump in? I know you've got some burning questions from Michael. So Michael, after the Institute for Community Economics in Massachusetts, the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund sort of became an idea. And you were one of its volunteer directors pushing that idea. But what spurred people to think about a statewide loan fund in New Hampshire with ICE just a couple of hours south of here? Right. Well, part of it was a decision at, at, at ICE. I mean, one, one of the discussions we had is, do we want ICE to go national in the sense of becoming large and serving everyone? But, but you know, looking at community development principles, the idea was to try and build institutions that engaged people locally, had local ownership and control. I mean, in some ways, the same driving idea behind rocks, which is to give people control over their lives and stability. And, and so, you know, it just didn't seem realistic. A, a strategy that came out of ICE was what we really ought to do is help interested people in other places develop their own so that they'd be more attuned to local needs, uh, greater ability to attract local investment, better able to serve a, a local population and, and represent that population through its governance. Makes sense. Local people know best, right? So fast forward to 1983, you connect the Community Loan Fund to a question from a student in your class about a manufactured home community. Yeah, I mean, the Community Loan Fund was something that we got started. I mean, I essentially identified people in different sectors throughout the state and just decided we'd start meetings with the goal of creating a fund. So there was organizing of that for almost two years before the fund was started, where we had uh, ongoing meetings. And then uh, fairly soon after we incorporated, one of the first things we did, which is probably our best move, was to hire Julie Eads, who ran the fund for you know 35 plus years, just uh, retired in the past couple of years or so. So it was really a, a, a community organizing effort more than anything else to create the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund, to, to get people from different sectors involved and engaged and, and to understand the concept. Once it was created, the, the first loan, which was a, a, a rock Meredith Cooperative, really came out of a student project. I was at the time and still run a master's degree program in community development for adult practitioners. And a core part of that program was everybody had to have a local project that they did in, in their home community. Well, the, the way it happened is that uh, there were two people in the class. One was 
Becky Story and the other Linda Searles who were thinking about their project. And, and uh, Becky and Linda were very close friends. They both lived in uh, Laconia in New Hampshire. And uh, one day early in the program came in and said, uh, you know, Linda said that her brother, Bob Searles, was uh, in danger of getting evicted from his park in, in Meredith because it was about to be uh, bought. And, and, you know, was there anything they could do? And, and, uh, and we talked about, well, you know, maybe your project should be how to work with Bob to do something. And we talked about the cooperative model and could they buy it? And of course, you can imagine back then the idea was, since there was no precedent for this was, well, you know, how could they ever buy that? Uh, well, the loan fund had just been established. And, and you know, as I said, I'd, I'd been working on community land trust financing. And again, a lot of similarities in terms of particularly the land separated from the housing, that model, which was similar uh, in, in land trusts. And so we proposed, well, why don't they form a cooperative? And, and, you know, the first question, well, who would finance that? And I said, oh, well, I've got the answer to that one. We're, you know, looking for loans. Because even in the startup of the loan fund, it's sort of funny that the initial group, we sit around and somebody would ask, well, what happens if we start a loan fund and there are no borrowers? What do we do then? Because as, as you know, even now, a lot of what community development financial institutions do is market creation, help people become ready to become borrowers who aren't necessarily an existing market. And then the other group of people would look back at them and say, you know, well, what if we get all this demand for loans and we have no money? <laughs> and so we didn't know which it was going to be like, what if we had no money and lots of loans or what if we had lots of loan demand and, and, and no money? <laughs> So we had some initial investment, including from the Sisters of Mercy as well. And that became our first loan to the Meredith Cooperative to purchase the land and, and preserve their community. And as you know, Paul, today, the, the most affordable housing in New Hampshire in terms of the, the cost to the, the co-op members. Exactly. And, and we had a great episode a couple of months back with Jeff and Jason Searles talking about the legacy that their father had helped spur up there at, at Meredith Center, uh, and also an episode with Julie Ede. So this is all, uh, you know, we, we are coming full circle here on the genesis of of resident ownership and the and the limited equity co op model uh, in manufactured home communities. This is this is terrific. So, Michael, I'm wondering, is there another student project that has led to a significant change like resident ownership? Yeah, I th the range of student projects over the years has has been really amazing and, and, and varied and, and, you know, ranges all the way from, you know, many of them involve starting small loan pro programs or even, you know, starting what become uh, uh, CDFIs or, or developing new products for lending, but, but they range. I mean, projects also address public health initiatives and like I said, affordable housing and small business and microenterprise. So there's a, a wide range of projects. The idea really is to, encourage people to you know, develop project development skills, to figure out how to take on the development of project. By design, they have to engage their communities in their project and organize discussion groups and outreach. I mean, good community development really is a function of, of community organizing blended with the technical skill to take uh, what comes out of a community organizing effort into a, a long-term uh, stable project, whether that be a business, a cooperative business, uh, affordable housing, 
community health center, for example, creating something like that. So a wide range of projects that encourage people to look at how, how do you organize within a community to create long-term, stable, economic enterprise projects. Yeah, you describe community organizing, you know, deep community engagement, shared ownership, and a nonprofit that's deeply connected to the communities they're serving, this idea of national and then developing statewide loan funds so that ideally the lending is closest to the communities that they're serving. Listeners know from your intro that Michael is on the Rock USA Board of Directors. And Michael, you've got to watch Rock USA's development as a community development lender and our efforts to really engage communities in what is a national nonprofit. I'd love you to reflect on the engagement that we're practicing along those principles you lay out, but as a national organization, really trying to address a major problem nationwide. Talk about how we've gone about trying to engage communities. Yeah. Well, I think the most important thing to start with is, is the importance of rocks is, is the idea of maintaining local ownership and control. When, when people think about the place they live, the worst thing is to feel instability, to not know what's coming, to say, oh my gosh, what if I don't have a place to live is really the biggest fear, right? And so whenever you're dependent on someone else who controls your rent, for example, so this is true with renters, if, you know, the landlord can come in and say, your rent's going up $600, you know, starting September 1st, and you don't have $600 extra per month. And, and the same thing on, on, on ownership. If someone can evict you or just randomly increase your rent at a cost that you can't afford, your life's in chaos. Having a stable place to live where you have ownership and control of that place is, is one of the most important things in, in having a decent life. It's absolutely necessary. Housing instability is just the worst. And so this is what Rock does is, is you know, the most important thing is, is, is offer this sense of stability. It's yours. No one can kick you out and you have a say over how things are run. It reminds me, uh, sociologist Mill Duncan, a colleague of yours uh, previously at the University of New Hampshire, said stability is underrated. You know, just it all starts with stability for families and households and builds from there. Absolutely. Community loan funds have worked to engage communities in their work. It's not a service, exclusively a service to, but a service in partnership with. And, you know, Rock USA has, has uh, supported the development of the Rock Association and Rock Leaders as an integral part of the board of directors at Rock USA. Is that a practice you see across the community development world, or is Rock USA not entirely unique, but somewhat unique in how we're approaching really deep community engagement in the organization itself? Yeah, well, I, you know, it's a basic principle of good community development is engagement. I would say Rock does it much better than most I see. I mean, a lot of times people pay lip service to it. For Rock, I think the difference is it, it's actually built into the basic model. It's built into the basic model of how rocks are established and governed. And even in terms of Rock USA, I mean, in terms of governance of, of the organization and, and who's on the board and, and how they get there. I always talk about 
Rock as, as a, a model institution in, in terms of what other organizations can look at in terms of putting into practice what, what everybody says are the concepts and principles of community development, but, but many organizations still struggle with that. They're really controlled by a small group of people, a board that's maybe appointed by the executive director that look and think like the executive director. So Rock has done really a great job of putting into practice one of the underlying principles of, of good community development. That's great. And uh, great to hear, Michael. I know that's your opinion. And I wanted to hear you for our listeners talk about that. I was extremely proud. A week ago, we were on Capitol Hill. The three Rock Association directors were making visits to Capitol Hill. And what a difference it makes when co-op leaders, co-op members show up to self-represent for themselves and their communities. You know, our role is really in creating opportunities for that and pathways and meaningful opportunities or wins as a result of that. But the most persuasive arguments for this work, for the investment in these communities are co-op leaders themselves. And and I, I got to see that firsthand just a week ago, and it's it's uh, still brings a smile to my face. And, and as you know, Paul, we saw that in New Hampshire earlier this year when the state legislature tried to introduce legislation that would have seriously undercut the ability of rocks to organize and function the way they are. And and the number of rock leaders who showed up at the state house was really the turning point in, in making sure that didn't happen. Michael. I don't think it comes as any surprise to anybody who knows you to hear you brag about resident leaders and community loan fund and Rock USA, but I want to give you a second to talk a little bit and brag a little bit about yourself. You, of course, serve on the Community Development Advisory Board, and that was a presidential appointment. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit with our listeners how that came to be and when what you do there. What is your role? Yeah, well, I don't really know how it came to be. This is a, an advisory board that that works with uh, uh, the director of, of the CDFI fund. Uh, just to review, what what can the CDFI fund do to enhance the the, the performance in the, in the field to uh, make CDFIs more effective? You know, we don't really have anything to say about how funds are distributed or, or, or allocated. It's more on a on a large scale basis to think about how the institution, the CDFI fund, can can better support CDFIs and and improve the growth and performance of of the field. So we meet uh, approximately quarterly uh, as a board uh, to have discussions about this and offer suggestions and advice. And the fund has been a critical component of Rock USA's work. Yes, Paul? Absolutely. The CDFI fund of the Department of Treasury is a critical investor in CDFI's Uh, across the country, and certainly Rock USA Capital as a CDFI. Those are tough resources to raise. And, you know, this is really President Clinton's legacy in community development across the country, the CDFI fund and all the tremendous activity, all the impact. And I would commend the people too. Uh, Jody Harris is the the current director, and, and I think very highly of her. You know, these are people who generally share the mission of community development. Jody certainly does but have to operate within a, within a bureaucracy that has very strict rules. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult balance to achieve. I'm sure there are things that she would like to do, but unless she has a legislative mandate, uh, her hands are tied. But really the CDFI fund and the way it's structured is, is 
I think, a, an, an example of a really good government program. I mean, government programs are often criticized, but the way it's designed and structured is, is to invest really flexible money into CDFIs, giving them a, a lot of ability to determine how they'll use that money and not being prescriptive in terms of what needs to happen. It's, it's a type of program that really allows for the flexibility of different local organizations to determine how they can best use the money. So I, I think in many ways, it's a, a model government program. Yeah. And we're starting to see some of that in philanthropy in terms of you know investments in just core investments in nonprofits. But this is a case where I think the Department of Treasury CDFI fund has led the way in terms of flexible capital that can be leveraged based on the, in many cases, hopefully, entrepreneurial and mission drive of the the nonprofits they're investing in. Um, Michael, I'd like to bring you back to the rock world. Uh, Obviously, you've, you've been engaged in community economic development around the world. You've seen lots of organizations working in partnership with communities and bringing benefits to communities. As you look look out you know, for resident-owned communities, what do you see as opportunities for the resident-owned communities as a, as a network, a national network of locally-owned co-ops? What do you see? Well, two things. Let me start with concerns and, and, and then maybe talk about opportunities, which is you know, obviously, and this, this came up at our, a board meeting recently, Paul, is our concern about the fact that hedge funds and private equity funds are, are really bidding up the prices and, and, and making it unaffordable for many resident communities to actually buy their land. And, and, and that's really unfortunate. I mean, again, it goes back to the problem issues that I learned from Chuck Mathai many years ago, which is that when, when land is a commodity to be bought and sold for profit, it's just a, simply a commodity, then, the, then, then there are going to be winners, uh, you know, developers, and there are going to be losers, the people who live there. And it's still, you know, it's, it's still, you know, why is something that people need a commodity that can be bought and sold for profit where people can be displaced so easily? It's, you know, why do we, you know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, we don't charge, we have public water systems. We we wouldn't think of saying, all right, from now on, water is subject to market prices for every individual. And, and you can't have a drink of water because now the price is $50 a gallon. But but that's what we do for housing is that they're just unlimited price increases. Uh, it, it's a commodity to be bought and sold. So I'm concerned because we're obviously seeing uh, people being priced out of the market because they can't compete with hedge funds, which are simply going to raise rents. The goal of making as much profit as they can for their for their shareholders. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I see opportunities in the fact that the idea of Rock as a, as a network system of taking advantage of of building an organization that can more efficiently deploy funds, more efficiently organize people. So I, I think. You know, particularly, Paul, this gets back to, to you and, and, and you're thinking about how can an organization maximize its ability to provide uh, the services and, and, and loans necessary to convert to more resident ownership. And so that involves thinking about systems and, and, and networks and how do we maximize access to capital and, and funnel that to communities that need it. So I think there are opportunities in, in terms of looking at the model of, of delivery. How, how can we grow resident ownership? And that 
the idea of connecting organizations and communities all around the country is one where there are real benefits on an economic basis to achieve more impact. So I, again, you know, it's, it's why it's so much fun to serve on the rock board is because the organization's really so creative in thinking about how to address the problem, a very difficult problem, I might add. Yeah. And getting more difficult all the time for a whole host of reasons and certainly private equity and hedge funds chief among them on the purchase side. Michael, if you were a local community leader, a local co-op leader, a rock leader, what would your North Star be for your community? You know, you're operating, you're a neighbor, you're within the community, you're operating this resident-owned community or contributing to the operation, but you're part of this larger network. And as you think about the future, you know, for a co-op leader, what, what should they be thinking about as they look out in their own leadership in the community? How should they be thinking about their leadership? Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. And, and you know, you and I have talked about this a, a little bit. I, I think part of it is once you've created a, a cooperative entity, for one, a, a resident-owned community, and you're part of a larger network, it's, it's, is to look at what are the other ways that the cooperative can serve its members? So right now we've we've bought a place where exercising control over, over the land and improvements. So people have some stability in their lives. What else do they need to build on that, that stability? How many people in, in the park have retirement funds? How many have health insurance? Are, are there other products that through a cooperative network that my members might be able to take advantage of now that they have housing stability? Again, once you have a network together and, and people operating in a collaborative way, there are opportunities to look beyond what initially brought them together, because ultimately the goal is, you know, is how do we collectively improve our quality of life? What, what would make things better? And you've seen that in the co-ops, right, Paul? So when we look at co-ops and compare them to non-resident owned, we see, well, one of the things they like, for example, is recreation areas. So you'll see more playgrounds or, or, or places for recreation will be built into co-ops that are resident owned because that's what's important to them. So I think the idea of taking advantage of this network and, and the collaboration that's already achieved to look at, are there other ways we can improve quality of life for everybody through some sort of collective action? Wonderful. Michael, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners as you think about U.S. history and the work in communities? Again, I, this isn't anything new, but just to emphasize again, this whole concept of, of, of resident engagement and, and, and why it's so important and, and having a voice. I mean, maybe the best place to end is just a story that's always in my mind about one of the first visits that I made many years ago to a a resident-owned community, and it was part of a tour that was organized for for members of the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund. And we had a chance to just chat with some of the some of the residents. And I was interested in knowing about you know what were their experiences like. You know what I wanted to know is so what's different? What do you like about this? And you know what do you not like about this? Just you know off the cuff. And this uh, elderly woman, you know, said, you know. Uh, well, let me tell you a story about my experience here, which is always a good opening line, right? Because, <laughs> Absolutely. Because, uh, you know, it means that she's thought about it and connected it to something that's important to her. And she said, 
you know, I was I was born into a family, and I thought, oh, this is going to be a long story. <laughs> it started <laughs> with her birth. And she said, I, you know, I was, I was born into a family where, um, you know, my father made all the rules. And that was it. It was, you know, he made the rules and we followed them. And then I, you know, I went to school and my teacher made all the rules and I just followed them. And I went to church and all the rules were defined for me and, and I followed what they said. And I finished high school and I got a job and my boss made all the rules and I just did what was said. And I spent all my life, you know, I was always part of institutions, but I learned in school, we're a, you know, democracy and we get to make choices for ourselves. And she said, you know, look how old I am now. This is the first time in my life I've ever been part of an institution where I actually get to make a decision. <laughs> I'm part of making a decision. And when you think about it, it was like, wow, that's, you know, that's amazing that that's her perception of reality is, is that, you know, nobody ever cared what she thought or wanted to do until at this point where she actually was part of a structure where she got to help make the decisions and, and, and that she liked it, that it was important to her. It was something that was a, you know, a, a realization of, of something that had been missing, e even though we're, we're taught all our lives. We live in a democracy. We get to, but, but very few of our institutions are, are very democratic at all, as it turns out. <laughs> so anyhow, to me, that, that really crystallized the important work uh, that Rock does because, because it creates those opportunities for engagement and ownership and control, which really are important. Right, because in the process of making and contributing to democratic decision-making, you are deeply engaged with your neighbors and fellow members, which itself is a, an enormous community benefit. We know this from how communities you know, work through emergencies or stresses in the community. It, that neighbor-to-neighbor that -neighbor connection is critically important. Exactly. And it's not necessarily easy, as, as we well know. I mean, it's complicated and people disagree on issues. And, and, and you know, sometimes people leave and say, I'm never going to another meeting. That was crazy. Right. But ultimately, the positives far outweigh the negatives. Absolutely. It's messy and it's not necessarily easy. And I think when we're so in the weeds with this day in and day out, you sort of lose track of that. It's easy to lose track of, of the impact on individuals. But where we've seen it more times than you would probably suspect, and it's sort of your story about that woman sparked it for me, is the number of obituaries that we've seen of rock members and rock leaders who include their work in their own community, on their boards or on committees, in their obituary, which is a very short summation, of course, of their entire life, but it makes the cut. And I think that really speaks volumes too. No, that's an interesting point. Yeah, it really speaks to the legacy of this work and the early co-op members and leaders do some of the hardest work in that purchase phase of, of becoming a resident-owned community. Uh, it's really important to remember the, the legacy that they're, they're uh, creating because there are generations that are going to benefit from their hard work. And you're right, Michael, it's, it, has, it has a lot of hard work involved, but a lot of positives. And thank you for, for drawing that out at the end. And thank you, Michael, so much for joining us on Ownership Matters. Listeners can tell the enthusiasm we had for this interview and and we could do uh, part two, three, and four on this uh, for sure, Michael. So there are other topics we could have gotten into. Thank you though for the time and for your 
wonderful thoughts and contributions. And thanks again. Great. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Paul. Well, we've mentioned this before, that basically the entire idea of resident-owned communities started from a graduate school project by Rebecca Story and Linda Searles in Michael's class 40 years ago. I wonder if they ever imagined that their idea would blossom into first a statewide initiative in New Hampshire and then become a national program. And we are super proud, of course, because this national program has just recently surpassed 20,000 homes, Mike. I had the honor of attending a celebration at Spruce Valley Cooperative right here in New Hampshire, and they officially claimed the 20,000th home in a resident-owned community. And I got to say, the the length of time between the first home in a resident-owned community and the 10,000th was pretty substantial. And really put the pedal down to go from 10,000 to 20,000. That was the, the growth rate is super impressive. And as people familiar with our strategic plan would know, uh, by 2028, the goal is to support 30,000 homeowners in resident-owned communities. Six years to go, Mike. It's quite the legacy. You know, and I really enjoyed this history lesson and how community development financial institutions like Rock USA Capital got started. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of Ownership Matters. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining everyone. Talk soon.